Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to RNZ's Insight Program. Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley, and I've been investigating the sex trade. New Zealand decriminalised the sex industry more than a decade ago. Many other nations have looked at our legislation, the so-called New Zealand model, but haven't adopted it. Why? Has a greater focus on gender politics changed the landscape, or does the model only work here in a small, relatively isolated country? And does anything need to change? Well, they called it the C, you know, and um, that comprised of transgender girls, um, ship girls, they called them in the old days. Well, they called them ship moles, but not as in mole, like with an E on it. That's with an M-O-L-L. And they were the girls that, um, they were sex workers as well, but their, but their clients were the Japanese uh, fishermen. Chanel Hati, an outreach worker with the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective, is showing me around the streets in Wellington that in the 1980s were the public face of the sex industry. In the 80s and the 90s, oh, it was much busier, but the arrests were still happening and a lot of unwanted bag searches and, and things like that. Was it pretty tough to be working on the street then? Yeah, yeah, it was, and you had to be um, on your game not just worrying about undercover policemen but clients as well when you're out on the street like this you're vulnerable you know what you're doing was illegal but now it's all changed it's so much better the improvement chanel hati was referring to was the decriminalization that came with the passing of the prostitutes reform act in 2003 but does that now make the work a job like any other Sarah, who runs an agency in Wellington, says there are times when the trade can be very lucrative, but not always. People assume the women here are on thousands and thousands a week because they say you get 2.30 an hour, but they're not doing 40 hours a week. They could do one appointment a week. They could do 10 appointments a week. They could get an overnight job, make one and a half k just like that. It really is a non-consistent wage. You could have two weeks and have no work, you could be the woman on the books who consistently gets 10, 12 jobs a week. And some who've been in the industry for a long time worry about those who choose to work in it. Celeste, who runs a brothel in Christchurch, says for many it's like life in a mouse wheel. There's so many girls out there that will come in and say, all I need to do is a job today to pay the power bill, and I'm like, you're wasting my time. Is that your goal, is to pay the power bill today, really? So you've got to work every single day. One day for the rent, one day for the power bill, this is nuts. But they live their life like that, whether they're working for me or on a benefit. It depends on the individual. There will be some ladies out there that do really enjoy their time with their clients, absolutely. But there will be quite a few that it's a means to an end. This insight takes a look at the sex industry now and in the past and asks whether more change to improve conditions is needed. Order. The eyes are 60 the nose are 59, abstention one, the bill will be read a third time, unlock the door. Unlock the door.
It was by the slimmest of margins, just one vote, that the prostitution reform bill was passed at the end of June 13 years ago. A conscience vote. MPs were able to make a personal choice. The bill was sponsored by the central Christchurch MP of the time, Tim Barnett, who argued the new law would protect the well-being of sex workers while responding to community sensitivities. But it was an MP and former sex worker who was among the most passionate supporters. Georgina Byer spoke of the need for protection and her own experience of having a knife pulled on her by a client. It would have been nice to have known that instead of having to deal out the justice myself afterwards to that person, I may have been able to approach the authorities, the police in this case, and say, I was raped! And yes, I'm a prostitute, and no, it was not right that I should have been raped because I said no, and it wasn't paid attention to. An associate professor at the University of Otago, Gillian Abel, says that before the bill passed, everything connected with earning money from the trade was illegal, such as running a massage parlour or a brothel. Her work focuses on public health and in particular sex workers, and she paints a graphic picture of what the sex industry was like before any reform. It created an environment which was actually quite dangerous because it lent itself to violence, exploitation, coercion, because if you know, a sex worker was engaged in an illegal activity, they couldn't actually access the justice system if somebody was violent towards them or exploited or coerced them. So there were some really dodgy things going on within brothels, um, really exploitative practices. And it almost seems impossible to think how an industry could work where the actual delivery of service is fine, but absolutely everything around it isn't. Yes, it's, I always say it's a bit like being a hairdresser and you can't use a pair of scissors or a comb. It was just a ridiculous situation. Despite worries that decriminalisation could lead to a surge in the numbers of sex workers, Gillian Abel's research hasn't shown that happening. We did um, do an estimation of the number in the industry um, just or five years after decriminalisation and we found that there hadn't been an increase in the number of workers. In fact, the street-based workers had remained fairly stable. What we did find that there were fewer workers working in brothels and more working privately after decriminalisation. And that's probably for a number of reasons. Uh, num the rise of the internet has uh, made it easier to advertise. And that's how Sarah's boutique agency promotes those on its books over the web. After 12 years of operating, she's tired of trying to change the minds of people who have a preconceived notion of what those involved in the sex industry are like. I can sit there for half an hour trying to explain to them, it's not what you think. I know hundreds of women who are not on drugs, who are studying, who are just getting ahead in life, who bought their homes with the money they earned, who travelled the world, who still have their money sitting in savings, don't know what they want to do with it, but they will one day get ahead in life or pay off their student loans. But if your opinion is better than mine and you know all the women are on drugs um, and that they will do anything for money and they're uneducated, then I'm not going to convince you otherwise. You've made up your mind and I'm not going to waste my breath, basically. In Christchurch, Celeste tries to make sure all those engaged in her brothel have a clear goal of what they want to achieve and are as businesslike as possible. She wants them to be able to take away something tangible to balance out a job that can take a lifelong toll. And that's why I call it Broken China Dolls. I've made it very clear to every girl that comes to me for an interview, a client takes a piece of you, OK? A little piece. Make it count. If you're going to choose to do this job, 
then for goodness sake, make it count. The National Coordinator for the Prostitutes Collective, Catherine Healy, says the law change has made sex workers safer, but it's always been unrealistic to expect that violence will be wiped out. People say, oh, the law's changed, why is there violence? And there's this expectation that perhaps, you know, any violence associated with sex work might stop. I mean, you know, no industry's achieved that. And, you know, violence in and of itself occurs in society. It's not necessarily going to come to a halt simply because we've had a law change. It does, in fact, however, assist sex workers to report and it gives people the expectation, you know, that they deserve better. Christchurch has a sad legacy of violence that has affected those in the industry, with the murders of Rene Duckmanton this year, Mallory Manning in 2008, and Susie Sutherland three years earlier. It's street workers who are regarded as the most vulnerable. Manchester Street is the road in Christchurch where men cruise looking to buy sex. As he drives down Manchester Street, Detective Senior Sergeant David Harvey explains how a network of CCTV cameras has been installed to help keep people safe. He also talks about the areas used by the sex workers. So um, particular individuals will have particular locations that they stand on as part of, I guess, their choice. And of course, obviously, if they go away with a client and then come back, someone else may be sitting in that or standing in that general area. David Harvey now leads the city's adult sexual abuse team, but was previously based in the centre of the city. He says for some individuals with an addiction, sex work is an option to get more money for another fix. It's a tragedy, the fact that a number of the ladies and gentlemen that work out on the street have intravenous drug habits. And I think sometimes that clouds their thinking, which forces them down that pathway. But everyone has the opportunity of choice. And the fact that the um, legislation was put in, you know, 2003, you know, we're now, what, 13 years down the track, I think there's been a much safer place for them to work out of. Along with that legacy of violence, the local prostitutes collective says Christchurch also has more sex workers per capita than other parts of New Zealand. And to help keep those workers safe, the collective has set up a special texting service in cooperation with the police. The collective's acting regional coordinator, Tracy Palmer, says people sign up to the service and then get sent information about anyone acting strangely. Oh, we've had lots of successes from it, and particularly with outdoor workers that some people will call street workers um, because we can make them aware of a particular person in a particular car to be wary of. They can still make their own decisions but often they will say, yes, I've had a bad experience with that person too and they'll share that information among themselves as well. We've also had a situation not that long ago that somebody was actually making bookings and assaulting people and when we sent the bulk text out Somebody else had heard from this person, made the connection, and the police were actually waiting for him at this address. But whatever safeguards or laws are put in place, there are some who believe the industry can never be normalised. One of those is a former volunteer with the Prostitutes Collective, Sabrina Valise, who's worked in the sex trade in both New Zealand and Australia. The violence rates, murder rates, are so much higher in prostitution than they are in any other normal job. And um, if you compare it, 
to um, say you go into a post office and you can't say, well, I'd like to um, see somebody who's 18 with a double D who's only been on the job um, for a couple of weeks so that they're still new, um, you know, you can't do that anywhere else. So, I mean, it's not even comparable. And she says while the idea that decriminalisation would make the work safer is great, there are new factors at play preventing prostitutes from making any sort of complaint. We're also in a changing world where if you end up in the paper, it's not just going to be the newspaper, it's going to be across the world wide web. Uh, so unless you've got name suppression, then any future employer who Googles your name is going to know that you've worked in prostitution. That could affect the rest of your life. So why would you go to the police when that's the outcome. But academic Gillian Abel is far more optimistic when it comes to the gains of law reform. Research has shown that there have been so many positive gains through decriminalisation and no negatives, really. There's still a stigma associated with sex work, and I think there always will be, but it has lessened slightly. And when we look at, around the world, different ways of regulating sex work, no way of regulating has ever eradicated sex work. It's and a lot of the countries which criminalise, yeah, and there's still a lot of countries which are criminalising, there's a lot of research going on, and all the research shows that criminalisation drives the industry underground where it becomes more dangerous. And so all the research points to the failure of criminalisation. But Sabrina Villis believes that under the current legislation, more power has been handed to the operators. She highlights the way clubs charge what she calls an all-inclusive fee. That means the worker is given their share of the hourly charge, normally about 50%, but minus fees such as shift charges, bonds or fines imposed by management. Bridie Sweetman, the Prostitutes Collective's national liaison for law and policy, insists the reform legislation does give workers more rights. Sex workers have the right to work in safe conditions, um, they have the freedom to negotiate their working terms and they have greater protection around their right to privacy. And this is in contrast to other legislative models such as the Swedish model where sex workers don't have access to these rights, they don't have the same protections, they're forced to work alone without the recourse to safety measures such as working with other workers or hiring staff. And they also don't have the legal resource to dispute resolutions or the courts. Uh, they have trust issues with the police, who are perceived as a threat to their income, which is often their primary source of income, in contrast to New Zealand, where the police have gone from being mistrusted to being one of our strongest allies. But if the legislation is working, why do workers report still having fines and fees imposed on them, even when they're engaged as independent contractors? I think the fact that it happens less and less and is continuing to happen less and less shows that the positive aspects of law reform weren't going to happen overnight. You know, the morning after um, the bill became legislation was probably happening in every massage parlour and every brothel in the country. As both brothels and workers have been able to work without needing to resort to the practice of fining, it's happened less and less. Um, whether or not it will continue to happen less and less only time will tell. My requests to speak to the owners or operators of the bigger licensed clubs brought few responses. But one who did reply was Lynn from the Pelican Club in Auckland, who's been open for 20 years. She says at the moment the agency and parlour has up to 120 women on its books. Lynn didn't want to be recorded, but in an email confirmed her club did take what she called a small shift fee, but not some of the other extra charges. 
We don't find the girls or take bonds, although a lot of places still do. This is an old-fashioned way of controlling the ladies. And she gave this response to a question about whether the rights of those who work out of clubs like hers have improved since the law changes. I have listened to tales of woe for many years from ladies who have come from other establishments and can confirm that not all parlours treat their ladies with the respect they deserve. We run the Pelican Club like any other business. We do our best to do what we do in the nicest possible way. But along with questions about arbitrary employment arrangements, there are other questions about who can work in the industry. They have to be over 18, and they're not allowed to be on any type of temporary visa, be it visitor, student or work. The crucial layer of defence, New Zealand's Border Patrol. This reality series ran on TV One and tracked all border security, including immigration. This episode followed two women just arrived from Russia. The two young ladies with a suitcase of condoms on a four-day holiday organised by someone they hardly know all point to a prostitution racket. After being interviewed by immigration officers, they were refused entry to New Zealand, but Immigration New Zealand says it doesn't keep specific records of those refused entry because they were suspected of coming to work as prostitutes, so it's not possible to track the scale of the problem. But it has supplied details of a snapshot of suspected illegal activities covering only the last four months. Immigration says 28 suspected sex workers were prevented from entering New Zealand in that time, with the largest numbers coming from Hong Kong and Brazil. It also confirmed that in the three years between 2012 and 2015, 42 foreigners on temporary visas had them revoked after they were found to be working in the sex industry. But there is no proactive checking done, and it seems those figures are unlikely to be a true reflection of the size of any problem. When asked about what it does to ensure there isn't any trafficking into New Zealand, the police say they work closely with other agencies, such as immigration, if complaints are made or information is brought to their attention. In Christchurch, Detective Senior Sergeant David Harvey says the police stepped back after the industry was decriminalised. With the change, police pretty much took a hands-off approach to street workers and the industry. Um, and allowing themselves, of course, legally to get out there and work. Now, what this did in some ways was police then only became when there was violent incidents or or some sort of troubles um, developing in that area. But there are some demands for greater scrutiny of those working in the industry, particularly those who may have come from overseas. The United States State Department report on trafficking for 2016 says in New Zealand some international students and temporary visa holders are vulnerable to forced labour or prostitution. It recommends increasing efforts to identify victims through proactive screening of vulnerable populations, including women in prostitution. Catherine Healy of the Prostitutes Collective says the fact it's not possible to come to this country as a student or young traveller and work in the sex industry means it's not being treated like other work. So that means for us that we come across people who are particularly vulnerable. Uh, We have had dealings with travellers, you know, migrant sex workers who have had unpleasant experiences and have needed to have help from our authorities, and including the police, who have been fantastic in working sensitively with this issue because 
you know, they're in breach of not only the Prostitution Reform Act but also in breach of the Immigration Act. And, you know, it would be our wish that part of the legislation was revisited. But even if there are areas where change might be considered, why is the New Zealand model not being taken up elsewhere? Why is the so-called Nordic model, where the clients are criminalised, but not the sex workers, gaining more traction overseas? Earlier this year, the French National Assembly became the fifth European legislature to introduce a ban on buying sex. Sweden introduced the system in the late 1990s, followed by Norway and Iceland. In the UK, the Northern Ireland Assembly banned buying sex last year, along with Canada. Megan Tyler, who is a research fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne, focuses her studies on violence against women and gender inequality, especially in the sex industry. Dr Tyler says the Nordic model aims to reduce demand and has a two-pronged approach. Recognising the issues of violence against women in, in the sex industry specifically, but also that having a flourishing prostitution system is a barrier to gender equality more broadly and that as long as you have state endorsement essentially or at at best maybe a state not caring about whether or not men purchase women for sexual use, then you you find it very difficult then to also put messages about uh, not sexually objectifying women, about protecting women's boundaries, about listening to, to women when they say no, um, that you are getting kind of contradictory messages in a way from, from the state if it says prostitution is fine but other forms of, of violence against women and sexually objectifying women are, are wrong. The Nordic model is viewed by Catherine Healy as patronising legislation that removes any notion a woman can make her own decisions uncoerced. So it's just made the sex workers' lives more difficult. So, you know, not only do they have to think for themselves, they have to also sort of think for the safety of the client who feels you know that it's precarious and it's just not a good legislative model. But as a supporter of the Nordic model Megan Tyler argues the bigger picture of the sex industry is one of harm. That doesn't necessarily mean you won't find individual women saying I find it empowering I think it's really great. Um, In the same way I often compare things for example like the the brown coal industry that again we have in my home state of Victoria here where we look to curtail that um, even though it, it, because it's very harmful, even though there might be individual workers within that industry who say, I love it and I think it's great. Um, so you've got the kind of broader social harms uh, that you have to deal with as well as then the harms to uh, individual prostituted people. And, yes, we do come across the argument that this is paternalistic, um, that this is not representative of all women's experiences. But, again, I work with a lot of sex industry survivor organisations and uh, they're women who also have their personal testimonies saying, you know, that this, this was horrendous abuse for me, I experienced it as horrendous abuse. Um, you can't ignore issues like trafficking and coercion and poverty and racism that all play into the sex industry. She also rejects the notion that it's better to find a safe way to cater for demand than to push the activity underground and argues there should also be help for those wanting to leave the trade. Overall, she views the sex industry as a form of violence against women and therefore one that shouldn't be accommodated in any way. But after more than a decade of running an agency, Sarah is angered by any suggestion the women she works with are operating against their wishes. I mean, who says sex has to be between two loving people? Who says that? That, that's your moral and that's for those people who say, you know, I couldn't imagine someone buying my body. They're not buying your body. Your body is yours and you can do with it whatever you want.
There are others working in the industry, such as Jane, who are exasperated by suggestions she doesn't understand the impact of what she's doing. I guess I get quite annoyed when people talk about that side of it because it's an assumption that somehow my job is inherently disrespectful towards myself and it can have like an implicit element of you're not smart enough to realise that someone's insulting you or someone's like demeaning you. So you would feel it is patriarchal and patronising? Yeah, I feel that adult women can make sexual choices and can decide to live with those choices regardless of if someone else thinks that if they were in that position they would feel demeaned about it. I think that in terms of what circumstances people are comfortable having sex, that's something that's very personal and varies a lot between people. Although the so-called New Zealand model hasn't been adopted elsewhere, it has been seriously discussed at a select committee considering prostitution law in England and Wales. In Scotland, a bill decriminalising the industry has been proposed, but not yet introduced following the elections this year. Catherine Healy believes there is still a huge amount of interest in what happens here. New Zealanders need to appreciate this. It's regarded as you know, a, a framework for good practices you know that uphold the human rights of a population of people who, who some of whom are quite vulnerable. Aubrey who works in an agency says she wouldn't be seeing clients without the law change that decriminalised the industry. I wouldn't be doing this if this was illegal um, I think that makes it way more dangerous. And if there was to be one change to New Zealand sex laws Jane is clear what she would like it to be. Definitely a union for people who, are work, who aren't fully self-employed and who are working for clubs and parlours. Like at present, there's definitely a lot of like situations where there are bosses who want you to have all the responsibilities of an employee but none of the privileges. So you're an independent contractor, you're self-employed when it's tax time or when you need to take time off work sick. But when you turn up to work, and, like, you know, they want to say, this is what you need to wear, or, like, this is how we're going to advertise you, or, like, we want you to see this person, then you're an employee. Even though Celeste earns her income through running a brothel, she worries everything is too easy. Sex for sale has become like buying a burger. We've got the internet, which I didn't have in my day. You can just buzz into your iPhone, a website, and there's all the eye candy you can find. It's easier than ordering a McDonald's and fries. I mean, seriously, that is how the industry has become. Should it in some way be more difficult? Well, I think the age for girls working should be taken up to 20. I mean, 18 years of age. What do you know at 18? At Sarah's agency, the phone is still ringing with clients wanting to book appointments and women checking when they're due in. In between calls, Sarah tells me in the 13 years since the law reform, many aspects of the work have improved, if not all. Does it still go on, that women are exploited? Of course it does, definitely, yeah, without a doubt. But it's only been 13 years. So what about in 20 years? What about in 30 years? Is, is it going to be completely different? And, and, you know, it's really interesting because I'm 37, so I talk to a lot of people my age who still have a stigma about it. You talk to a 20-year-old and already their attitudes are changing. Sex is everywhere. So this generation coming through now is, so what, you got paid for it? Well, you were out last Friday night giving it away for free down the pub. Good on you. It's, I think attitudes are changing. And from her position heading the Prostitutes Collective, Catherine Healy feels there is some way to go in improving attitudes, not just towards sex workers, but women in general. 
there's a whole gender debate here and I think we as women um, know that we've got a long haul with attitudes in terms of achieving equality and you know having um, sexual freedom and you know not having those negative labels etc so it's not just something that's pertinent to the women who work as sex workers in the sex industry it's something that you know pans across us all. I'm Philippa Tolley and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Gail Woods and Teresa Cowie. Technical production was by William Saunders. And if you'd like to hear from sex workers themselves, agency and brothel owners and a client, head to RNZ's series and podcast page where you can find a three-part series along with videos and features or head to iTunes. Thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.